Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Working in a frontline environment routinely exposes an individual to trauma. When combined with pre-existing psychological experiences, this can be a trigger for for traumatic injuries, including PTSD. It doesn't matter what type of injury was sustained in the line of duty, direct physical trauma or observed trauma, the impact is synonymous. The experience of trauma has a neurobiological impact on the brain and multiple impacts will, will place a person into a state in which they may no longer cope. By routinely providing psychoeducation for immediate intervention, teach self-help techniques that are neurobiologically effective and provide more structured support from leaders and other health professionals, then we have a much greater opportunity to prevent traumatic injuries developing. Today's guest, Kerry Howard, is a a best-selling author and psychologist specialising in trauma prevention and treatment. Kerry has won two international awards for her commitment to treating PTSD and improving mental health in Australia. Since 2010, Kerry has presented at a variety of international conferences, including the USA, Europe, and Australia. She's developed professional development training in the promotion, prevention, and early intervention of traumatic injury. Her book, The Trouble with Trauma, provides clear guidance about how to resolve traumatic experiences. Stay tuned as Kerry delves into the facts of PTSD formation and what we need to implement in the early stages for greater prevention and treatment. All right, welcome, Kerry. Thanks very much for joining me on the show. Thanks, Sam, for having me. No, it's a pleasure. Uh, do you just want to give us a bit of background about um, how you got into psychology in the first place? Because I think it'd be interesting to s- sort of understand why you first got into it. It's a funny story because I'm actually a late career psychologist. Um, I didn't actually get my degree until I was 40. So I've only been sort of as a psychologist, I've only been working in this area the last 10 years or so. So Prior to that, I had roles in government and I was working in mental health for um, federal government and drug and alcohol, those sorts of areas, while I was still studying. Um, But why I went into psychology is a bit of a funny story. I got hit by a bus as a pedestrian in 1998. I'd already decided to start my psychology degree the year before, but I was a single mum with two little kids and, you know, getting hit by the bus, I then suffered PTSD and I... um, suffered from secondary depression and so I spent a year in therapy and so what the bus did was actually make me focus my attention in my psychology journey on trauma and wanting to be a a trauma specialist along the way so why I got into it in the first place was because uh, I really wanted to work with people and I'd actually originally wanted to be a school psychologist and funnily enough I did work as a school psych for a little while Um, I liked working with young people so 
that was probably the main driver first off, but because I specialised in trauma and I always wanted to help people the way that I was able to be, you know, assisted all those years before. That must have been challenging, um, obviously, you know, for a year in therapy and, and obviously having two young kids. Mm. Uh, that would have been a challenging part, trying to do it all yourself. Yeah, it was, um, it, it was, it was very, very tough. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've written about the couple of times, I, I mean, I've been suicidal twice in my life. One was following the bus. And, um, you know, when you're looking at two and four-year-olds and you think that they're better off without you, you kind of understand that there's some pretty full-on things going on inside our heads that are, uh, are increasingly um, powerful drivers. And, I just wanted to sort of help people understand that, you know, they didn't have to necessarily take that take that out just because that's what your head's telling you to do at the time. It's probably a good indicator that there's something else going on. You probably need some different help. So I was able at least to use that as a catalyst. Yeah. And so you uh, undertook your undergrad. Whereabouts were you, were you, did you do your psychology through? I actually started my psychology degree at Deakin as an off-campus student, but after about eight years of off-campus, you know, sole parent working full time. Yeah. I just kind of, I also, I'm an auditory learner, I've worked out. So when I hit third year, which was, you know, it was actually my ninth year of study, um, I approached the ANU and asked to transfer and become an on-campus student and thankfully they let me in. So um, I transferred to be on campus at the ANU and then I was um, lucky enough to get to do my honours there as well. Yeah, so I did my honours research in... Um, at the Center for Mental Health Research, sort of outside the the um, School of Psychology, and I got world first results in my honors research. I was looking at help seeking in young people, and um, I even <laughs> I'm a bit of a you know I push boundaries. Um, my research was actually working with young people, but prior to this, we'd never had ethical approval to actually work with children under eighteen, and I put an a uh, well, an argument to the ethical board that sort of said, well, from 16 they're allowed to make decisions about whether or not they have their health services and stuff under Medicare, so they should be able to decide whether they want to participate in research. And so they agreed with me. So we were able to actually undertake research with 16-year-olds. Wow, that's incredible. Mm, it was a pretty – I mean, that was a big thing. My supervisor didn't think we would get it through, but we did. And the other thing I think that I did about that research that was pretty unique was that I um, – utilised an intervention that had pre and post in the same sort of session so I didn't have the dropout rates that we often see in research for psychology where we have to follow up a long time later. We were able to kind of do a, a pre-assessment, provide the intervention and then do an immediate post-assessment and so um, the data was actually really good. Wow, that's amazing. Mm. Would have been very proud, the uni would have been very proud of that. Oh yeah and it was, I mean when I it was probably prouder when I was able to publish it. So yeah. <laughs> when, it, when it got published was a big thing. And I think too because help-seeking intention, I was actually looking at help-seeking intention in young people and we got some amazing data, stuff that didn't end up being published in the paper, like, you know, if you give young men a biological rationale for why their brain's not working effectively and that maybe if they talk to somebody about it they could do something, even if they think that means take a pill – they're more likely to help seek than not. And so the messaging that we give people, you know, about biological basis for our behaviour as opposed to a psychosocial one is a really big, big important message that I think sometimes gets lost. So there's a lot to do with the approach. 
Yeah, it is. I think it's also helping people to understand. And and I've just written a new book uh, that was released in November called The Trouble with Trauma. And in that book, I talk about the link between the psychological and the physiological and that our mind is actually the whole center part of our body. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in terms of our neuro research that's come out in, you know, the last decade that gives us a lot clearer understanding about that. And actually it was, you know, Descartes in the 17th century that caused us to cut this thing off at the head. So our medical kind of research and our psychological research went down these sort of separate paths, but actually the body is a single body. And often what we think about changes the way our bodies function and often how our body functions can change the way our mind operates. So things like we know now, you know, your serotonin levels, 95% of that's produced in your gut. You eat bad, you you know, is it any surprise that our health is going to deteriorate, we won't feel great. But by the same token, we can also do it in reverse. And I think it's it's good to understand it as a linear thing as opposed to a, you know, black and white chicken or egg. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's incredible, really. But, but it makes sense the way yeah. you explain it. Yeah, exactly. What, what were you doing before you got into – before you hit the bus, what, was you, what were you doing for, for a job? Um, <laughs> when I – well, I actually left school at 16. So, you know, I'm – I would arguably say I'm probably neurodiverse. So I, um, I was a, a bit of a rebel, I suppose. <laughs> I, uh, I know you can't tell that by looking at me. But um, <laughs> so I left school, you know, went into hairdressing. I was always a bit of a people person and for a range of reasons lived in a small country town and, you know, hit 17 and was too old to be a hairdressing apprentice. Um, I know all these silly things. I went overseas when I was 18, went to live in London and I was just working in admin sort of stuff. Came back, went to Melbourne and uh, started working for the bank. Now, interestingly, the first thing I ever went back to uni to study was economics because the the bank, I went, they sent me off on this high flyer weekend. I was all of 19 and the bank's head economist came up to me in the break and said, so where did you study economics? And I'm like, um, nah, I left school at 16. And he goes, no, no, you've got a natural head for economics. You go back to school and study economics. The bank will pay for everything. And I was like, okay. So I tried to the next year, but because I hadn't done my HSC, they wouldn't let me in. They said, you go and do a course, night course, and show that you can do economics. So I did. I went off and I pulled off something ridiculous, like a 98 in that economics course at night and I really liked it. Then I enrolled in uni and I I never remember which way it is. I like macro but not micro or the other way around. Yep. But so one was really interesting, the other one was really boring and so I just thought it probably wasn't really me. And we were in the middle of the recession that we had to have, but that was back in the 90s. So um, I okay. kind of decided, no, that wasn't really me and that sort of led me to think about what I wanted to do next. I've always been a believer in education. So, you know, I've never, even from the time I left school up until I finished my degree, I pretty well studied part-time something the whole time. Wow. I went to TAFE at night or I did some, you know, even in yeah. the beginning it was like shorthand, but I always did something. I was always kind of, you know, truth be told, I've probably got a bit of ADHD. I don't like to sit still. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm guilty of a bit of that as well, I reckon. Uh, but that's incredible. So you've gone from economics uh, and now you're in trauma and one of the leading specialists in trauma uh, in Australia is certainly uh, a, a best-selling author on the topic. Let's talk, about, uh, let's talk about prevention of traumatic injury. Tell us about why you think that that is 
the key area that deserves a lot more attention than what it's currently getting. Yeah, I think the um, the biggest issue. So when we start talking about promotion, prevention, and early intervention around mental health, what we're talking about is the promotion stuff is the you know general awareness raising we help people understand mental health is a problem how we can that we can do something about it i think covid's helped a lot of people understand that um but we've got major sort of you know issues in that linking between that promotion area and then we jump to early intervention so most large organizations they've got eaps or they've got those sorts of things Prevention stuff, believe it or not, is from when the injury actually occurs to when it's diagnosed as a disorder. So that, to me, that's a stupid assessment. It should not be. Prevention, arguably, should be before it occurs. But I think from a DSM perspective, what they did was they decided, no, well, we just, you know, we're not going to call it a disorder until it's been there for a month. So we're going to call prevention the, the bit between when we know something happened and hoping it doesn't turn into a disorder. But the problem is that most people don't understand that bit and they don't do any intervention in there. And there's an argument, and I've had this conversation with multiple psychologists at different points in time, where they say, you mean you'd intervene before they said they had a problem? And I'm like, yes, because we know it's going to become a problem. And in fact, if we intervene within the first six hours post-incident, we can usually prevent PTSD developing at all. So there's quite a lot of research around that. We understand the neurological networks, how the memory lays down, and we also understand what some of the key drivers are, like responsibility. If somebody is telling themselves post-incident that it's their fault somehow that they didn't do something right, it's going to turn into PTSD. Right. So if we get that early and we understand that and we can, you know, intervene to sort of rationalize it at that point and switch off that blame game, then that's not going to necessarily turn into PTSD. Yeah. So obviously, I mean, we're here with uh, frontline mental health of of the frontline workers. Yeah. But if, if we're looking at just general education awareness before any incidents occur, so the Where's the opportunity prior to an in, a traumatic incident taking place? Is there is there much more we can do in that space? Before? Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the problems that we end up with in psychology, and, and we saw this just last week, right? The Meghan Markle, you know, Prince Harry saga that played out. You then get people like Bessel van der Kolk coming out in the New York Journal and saying, you know, oh, that's not trauma just because he lost his mum when he's a child. Clinically, that doesn't actually qualify. That doesn't necessarily mean it. And, you know, her experiences are later in her life. And yes, they are going to mimic the stuff that comes from childhood because that's actually what happens with our negative belief systems. The problem is that we then get people who intellectualise it, so much so that we now have a whole bunch of people, if they read the New York Journal, would sit there and kind of go, that's not trauma. But it is trauma. You know, we had presentations here yesterday about organisational trauma. That the, the, the reality of the word trauma is it comes from the Greek. It means wound, right? So it... Trauma is an emotional wound. That's it. So when we start helping people to understand that developmentally there are certain things that happen in our childhood that mean we have concrete thinking and then when we get past that point and we hit our adolescence where we start to question things in the world, if we then help those children understand that these experiences that they had before that make them feel like they're not good enough or they're not worth it or they're not smart or they're, you know, stupid even, then 
we can help to correct that. We actually can change that belief system before it becomes one of those things they take into their adulthood. And one of the things I talk about in the new book is that we actually have a system of parts and when we understand that that system, we can easily transition ourselves out of our emotional reaction and behaviour, whatever that may be, and into a more rational, moving forward approach. But we can also recognise when we're numbing and avoiding a, a situation So, because we, we do both. And when we understand that we have that system of parts and we understand how you transition between them, you can manage your own mental health and you don't need the likes of me. Um, and that's important because there are only 3,000 psychologists in private practice in this country at the moment. Mm. Yeah, and, and when you hear, I know uh, when I was hearing the Queensland Police Service, they, they have something like 26 psychologists for something like 15 and a half thousand employees and so uh, I mean the ratio is quite low and so there's only so much that you can do but tell us about so you were talking about the system and understanding your own so you almost have that you have to have that general awareness don't you to start with so that you are aware of what's going on yeah to then be able to have some control um, and to be able to then intentionally um, take control over how you feel moving forward is that yeah, yeah. So one of the challenges, of course, is using a word like control because even though I know that's how we kind of want to frame it, we we don't really have a whole lot of control. But if we understand that we have a, a framework because actually the way people behave, even though we all like to think we're really unique, is a framework around it. And that framework actually, when you understand it, allows you to transition yourself. And the, the analogy I use is driving a car. You've got one part driving the car, but you've got the other parts of you all around. When you enter therapy as a, a therapy role, the therapist's job is not to drive you around like a limousine. The therapist's role is to sit next to you like your driving instructor until you get a good handle on how to drive and, and you know which parts should be in the driver's seat of your life. Now, your rational adult part should be driving the car. The reason that we feel like life, you know, veers off down a path we don't know is usually because if we've got fear or our child parts in control of the car – child can't see over the dashboard, they can't drive you anywhere. So this feeling of being off the rails is often what happens in that. So in the new book, I actually describe how to understand that system of parts and then how to transition between them. Because actually we use language to transition between parts. And, you know, the psychologist listening would understand that we're talking about how we use language to kind of keep ourselves in an emotional state or move ourselves out of it. So in that way, it's a bit like that, but it helps it kind of puts it into a different context that makes it easier for people to understand. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I talk about the jukebox of your life, right? And I kind of go, you know the old days when you used to go to Happy Days and you go in, you put your 20 cents yeah. in, you choose your three songs and you're sitting there with your milkshake and you're waiting for the next one to come? A lot of people before they enter into therapy, that's one of the things that they feel. It's like this, you know, I'm stuck in this feeling and this emotion, this behaviour and I don't know how to stop it and I can't get out of it and I've just got to wait until it's finished, until it's over. And I always say you're sitting there and you're hoping your song's next and 
nah, the next one's somebody else's song and you feel like you're completely out of control. But then it's the awareness that when you recognise all of the different records in your own little jukebox, then you know that you can take the programming thing and you can change it at will. And then we turn it into an electronic playlist and then, you know, you can set up your own Spotify playlist that plays every day that makes it feel awesome. Yeah. And it's that's a process that we take people through in their understanding of their parts of self and then just how to kind of get better management of that system. That's a, a really good analogy. Oh, it's a great one. Yeah. And everybody understands it. It kind of helps to make Simple. sense about, yeah, about the voices in your head and the arguments that you have with yourself and, you know, the internalised critical parent. You get that voice in your head that kind of goes, oh, you're such an idiot. And it's kind of like, that's not really helpful right <laughs> now, right? They can take a step back, makes it easier. As it relates to emergency services, how do you feel we're doing uh, from an educational point of view for PTSD, whether it's through the induction process, training and through service? I don't think we do a lot of preparation. I think young people these days, so if you look at our younger generation, they are much more emotionally aware. I won't say emotionally intelligent. They're emotionally aware. They know what they know what mental health is. They know when they don't feel good. They know how, you know, talk about that sort of stuff. But they come into a role like this and they're not given any kind of background about how they feel about certain things and why it's built on their, you know, own early experience, their own childhood stuff, their own negative beliefs about themselves. And so when we can help them, like, there's an opportunity, and I've talked to many and varying organisations about doing a simple kind of review at the end of their initial training. So when you've got your cadets and stuff and they're about to do their, you know, passing out parade stuff, that's the point where they've got their basic training about how to be, you know, how to be a police officer or how to be a paramedic or whatever. Soldier. Yeah. And then we kind of go, okay, before you go, all right, now that you've learned all of this stuff, we want to help you. These are the things that we know that are likely to then cause you a bigger problem in the future. And I talk about mental gym like you know we go into the gym and we do our pt and we but we don't do that from a psychological perspective and yet there's a whole bunch of things that we could do and it's also this reinforcement that builds self-awareness and when we do that you know we know the things that are going to help us effectively manage better in terms of that mental fitness but we don't actually teach them that stuff. And when we when we are aware that we have build up, build up, build up, and then people kind of get to a breaking point, there are things that we can do to intervene when we know those is, those incidents are, are pretty significant. Like I talk about traffic lighting, when you you traffic light the incident. But if we if we go and we send them out into the world with an empty vessel as opposed to one that's already half full with stuff, then they would be able to better and more effectively manage what's going on in the world. And it's funny because about five years ago I had a conversation with Defence and they were like, you can't force them to do therapy. And I'm like, why not? You force them to take malaria tablets. Like I just don't. To me, it's not a forcing thing. It's actually helping to educate them about why these things matter, why these things will potentially cause them to develop issues later on and that they don't need to. You're almost building their tool chest, really. Absolutely you are. It's like here's a tool that you can use for when you need it. Well, actually multiple tools, right? Because, you know, you want to have a good toolkit because one person will be okay with having a conversation and another person doesn't want to have a conversation. But if they know that there's an app or they can go for a run and if they go for a run, because I talk about the bilateral stimulation side, 
you can manage your own mental health if you recognise that when you go for a run and you're doing that bilateral movement, that you need to think about the things that are bothering you as opposed to running away from them and leaving them behind. Because if you think about them while you run, by the time you've finished your run, they feel better. And that's a natural, like that's well researched about why the arousal level comes down when we focus on things while we bilaterally stimulate the body. And that's where I talk about that connection between mind and body being so important. That's a great example. And uh, personally, I mean, I, I find that same thing. I, I love going for a run. When you lead a busy lifestyle, you're young kids and you, all of a sudden you just get out and you just do a 40 minutes or something of running and you come back and you're like, oh. Just that thinking time. It's almost meditative. Yeah, yeah. And well, because it is also that methodical movement, right? So you do have that thud, thud sort of that is. But the other thing about that is you'll start off thinking about the things that are bothering you, but you'll usually end up thinking about the future and what you can do, right? And that's a really important point about how that thinking process around that physical activity goes. Now, you know, on the flip side, I spend an awful lot of time in the gym doing, you know, HIIT training because I'm, I've got injuries and I'm trying to build that up. Yeah. I, I disconnect from my body at that point. Yeah. I don't want to feel that. No, <laughs> I don't want to know what's going on. But that's not that same movement, Yeah. right? But even I talk to people about when you've got problems and you sit down and have a coffee with a friend, rather than sitting, if you walk, right, then and you're talking about it, you'll actually bring the arousal down, you'll feel better. You get to the end of that walk and you've usually got a solution and and a way forward as opposed to still feeling like you need to have another coffee with another friend to have another whinge and carrying on about, you know, how your husband still won't empty the dishwasher. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. What what are some other tools that you think that uh, should be embraced uh, in that before they go to service? Are there any other – I know you mentioned running and – uh, well, they're just some basic tools that I think most people can use when they understand that something's bothering them. And this, you know, it goes to all work environments. Like, mm. you know, you're in a situation where you feel like you're being harassed or, you know, there's bullying going on or whatever. You'll feel better about it if you do some physical activity, so the walking, running, whatever. The other thing um, is just to help people understand that Sometimes just when we hit a brick wall where we feel like there's no way out, I often talk about the fact that you have a part of self that's called a seeker. And the seeker is the one who will go looking for information. So, you know, I don't have an answer to this problem. The seeker is the one who's going to go, well, let's find it. Let's research it. Let's go and talk to somebody. Let's, you know. So the seeker does stuff. That's a very rational moving forward part of us. Um, So tapping into that, Or as opposed to recognising when you're in that numbing avoidance space. So, you know, if it feels like I can't change something and then I'm sitting at home, you know, drinking too many wines or whatever, uh, or I'm, you know, online shopping or I'm spending all my time zoned out on Facebook. That's what I talk about, the numbing avoidance states. So it's the recognition. And a big part of what I sort of, I use an analogy, well, an acronym called RAW. So I talk about when we talk about injury, we'll say reality checking, the um, awareness, are they talking too much or too little, right? And then the walk and talk to help to bring the arousal down. But RAW is also, when I'm working with organisations talking about workers' comp prevention, it's recovery at work. There's the early intervention point when somebody goes off on stress leave, we can kind of intervene early and, and let them know that 
we, you know, we are there, we care about them. So there's a difference between what an individual can do to help themselves and then what an organisation can do to help their people when they know their people are struggling. Mm. Okay, well, that's an interesting, interesting distinction because you're right. As far as the organisation goes, there's tools out there. You mentioned apps, um, sleep, meditations, stuff like that. Um, all things that they can hopefully use as a tool, part of their tool that they can. When, so when they go to do service, for instance, they're they're equipped with some some tools that they can call upon when needed. Mm. Is that an example of the sort of thing that we're talking about here, um, or you're also talking about therapy? Yeah. So there, no, there's a, a. I think there's a couple of things that we can do before therapy, and okay. a big part of why I wrote the trouble with trauma was because I wanted to give people a way to help them understand their system right, how it developed, why trauma has such a big impact and what we need to do to manage ourselves. But we take that same system and we educate all of the members of an organisation about that system and then all of a sudden you don't have such big issues in terms of conflict because you've given them a map where they can see themselves in any particular situation and the other person can as well and it it brings us back to a place where we can step out of the emotional reaction and we can move into a rational let's move it forward response. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. One of the things I love what you wrote uh, when I was PTSD is recognised as an unintended consequence of frontline workers' experiences. Although the negative impacts are widely known, there is almost an acceptance within the industry that's an inevitable part of the job. Yeah. People that are getting into these emergency services uh, at some point – going to see or be a part of something that's a traumatic event yes what can we do where's the opportunity you've spoken about before within this first six hours what do we need to do better to prevent ptsd occurring in our front line so um before i answer that i noticed yesterday they were talking about the presumptive acceptance of you know ptsd from working in this area and I applaud that because the workers' compensation process itself actually causes big problems in addition to people already being adversely affected by the trauma. But stepping back from that, it is really important that we do a whole lot more to actually stop it happening in the first place. So I say to organisations always, traffic lighting your incidents. Now, most of them do. They traffic light them in terms of, you know, oh, well, if there was a death or if there was something like that. But one of the things that we know for sure that's going to send somebody into a really difficult space is if a child is involved in an incident. Um, And there are really simple things that can be done to do that traffic lighting. Now, if they then come up in a red, then they definitely need an intervention of some sort within the first six hours. Now, we can give them tools and ways that they can do that for themselves or we can get the intervening kind of happening in terms of a therapeutic intervention. But in reality, they often don't like – depends on whether they want to talk about it or not. So the awareness – some people, when they're, when they're feeling stressed, they're going to talk all the time. They're going to talk a lot. And then other people won't talk at all. And it's actually those two extremes that are the danger. So, you know, people want to talk about it, that's okay, but just talking isn't going to change it. They need some bilateral stimulation in the talking because that will help to bring the arousal down. Then the next thing we need to kind of have a look at is if they don't want to talk but they know that they can use a tool that will, if they think about it, and, and they focus on it while they bilaterally stimulate, that will bring their arousal down as well. Now, what I'm talking about are the forerunners of, you know, EMDR therapy, but it's giving people, you know, 
tools that they can use for themselves to begin with. Then if that doesn't help to bring it down and after 72 hours they're still having issues, then there would be a more formal intervention. Because if we can get at it before three weeks, then we will absolutely stop it from developing into anything worse. Because that's actually the way the neural network lays the memory down. That's why the first six hours is good, but the first three days is also important. But if you can't get in that quick, then the first three weeks. So within therapy in the three weeks, but it, they, there's stuff they can do for themselves in that first six hours. Yeah. And so is the opportunity then to, to, to start, embed that in the training and that, in that uh, induction process so that when the, when, the, when the incident becomes, which is most often not inevitable, mm. that they're ready to go, they've got some self tools that they can call upon. Um, yeah, when ready. but it's also then training the management to remind them about certain things. So okay. when I went to defence, well, this was five years ago, I sort of said to them, if they're in Afghanistan and they've been out on a particular tour and they knew that there was difficulty, then they can do these things with the whole group there's group things that they can do. Um, and then we train the sort of senior managers about what to look for. And the other thing is that we all wear wearables these days, right? So, you know, in, within that first 72 hours, it's, you know, the peer, super, like the peer support person could be checking in and kind of going, hey, let's have a look at your sleep data, right? You know, how's your heart rate been? A couple of these things that we know would indicate that they're still having a stress or traumatic response that we can actually really simply look at. And the other thing that I do is educate them about things like, you know, well, particularly guys, and I was explaining yesterday that it's really, we are biologically different, okay? Women have an emotion lobe and a communication lobe, one on each hemisphere, and guys have an emotion lobe on one side and a communication lobe on the other. It's not your fault you can't win an argument with your wife, right? <laughs> it just isn't. Their brain thinks faster than yours does in terms of thinking about what they feel. So understanding that is important because then we have to educate guys, if they go home and they're, you know, kicking the dog and getting cranky at the kids and, you know, getting into a fight with their wife and then um, they don't sleep very well and they wake up the next day and they're feeling the same, something's happened that's caused them to kind of get stuck in that rut of, you know, anger and frustration at the world and that's usually a good indicator that their mental health is starting to deteriorate. Now, we just, like, we just don't give people these really practical, simple tools. We make out, like, you know, the psychological side of things is this airy-fairy stuff that we just talk about, but actually it manifests in your body in all sorts of different ways and we just need to learn to look for what those signs are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Do you also think that the – is there a more of an opportunity as well to engage the families – people as well absolutely so um i think particularly when we've got extended volunteer networks so we start looking at things like you know queensland fire and emergency services have lots and lots of like volunteers in different places but i was speaking to somebody else yesterday who's in life-saving right so the, lots of volunteers when we're talking about the volunteer network we often have you know especially like lifesavers when they're young you know, they don't want to go and say that something bothered them because they're teenagers, right? They've got to look like they're cool. They've got it all together. But if you check in with mum and dad and they're saying, hey, this kid's really something changed and we don't know what happened, then that's usually a good indicator that there's a bigger problem. You know, if you've got a volunteer network and we talk about people in, you know, country towns and it's, you know, if you don't, 
pull up stoic and and show up and you're fine and everything's kind of okay um the losing face in public would be a much bigger issue but we've got to be able to let him know that hey if he is you know suddenly feeling like he wants to you know um, he's road raging at everybody while he's you know, driving through with the one set of traffic lights in town, then we've got a problem, right? And I think it's just trying to help bring it back to some of these practical things. And a lot of what happens, you know, unfortunately in psychology, because psychology needed to prove itself a science, I think a lot of the things that we do that are the really sort of practical hands-on stuff – you know, not really talked about very much. It's all, you know, proving our rats and stats and these things work and these things don't work. And I think particularly as we get more adaptive new technology changing stuff, we can use technology to actually help us understand our mental health when we don't read ourselves very well. And actually in the new book, I talk about the fact that we actually raise our children not to be in touch with them with themselves, not to feel what's going on in their body. We teach them to disembody themselves. We teach them to disconnect. And is it any surprise then that they can't tell you how they feel as adults? We need to not do that. We need to raise our children to, you know, have it um, validated. You know, when I say when a child falls over and scrapes their knee, what's the first thing that we look for to determine if it's valid? Blood. Right. And if there's no blood, what do we do? Oh, you'd be right. Exactly. Now, do you know what happens if you – because chi- like a child's brain needs the parent's brain to actually validate the experience because they still externalise the decision-making stuff when they're quite little up until about the age of seven. So if you say you're right because there's no blood, they're still crying and carrying on because it still hurts because it does, doesn't it? But when we talk about magic kisses – right? You kiss it better, it gets better. Why? Not because you're namby-pambying pansy to them, right? That's Mm. not it. It's because as soon as you validate it, their brain then releases the numbing chemicals at the surface of the skin and it numbs. Same thing happens as when we rub it, right? So if your child falls over and you rub and kiss it better, okay, it does feel better because the body has released the numbing, numbing things at the surface of the skin. But if you tell them that it doesn't exist because there's no blood that that process does not happen so it continues to hurt right that's interesting and a big part about this we tell kids to do this all the time i was really sad because nobody played with me today and we kind of oh you'll be right right no oh that must have really hurt your feelings yeah it's not nice to feel like that is it no okay so what do you think you could do tomorrow to try and make it feel different what could we try and do we don't go through these problem solving and I think a big part of it is because we're busy as parents we don't have time you know you kind of like yeah yeah sure sure (laughs) I've got to get me this other email out the way you know and yet if we taught them to embody themselves and validate how they feel they're going to grow up into adults who are able to more accurately reflect what's going on inside their bodies and and what they're feeling and how to resolve it for themselves. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, Kerry. I, I, you've touched on the, the, the role of the families in volunteer uh, groups. But what about the roles of, you know, military families or police families? Because, I, I mean, I don't know the statistics, but, I mean, there is uh, some impact that PTSD can Has have. Has on the family, absolutely. On the family and the wife, the kids. Yeah, yeah. Or, or the husband and yep. the kids, like... 
So what is, is there also something that we need to do better as far as education, um, trying to help them be equipped with some tools as well? I have actually um, been talking about developing some sort of 360 feedback app right because that the families can kind of provide back and it's not it's not trying we've got to get out of this dobbing mentality right and it makes it really hard but what we want to try and do is encourage people to have a circle of support and those roles are difficult those roles are challenging you go you know especially army sort of stuff they go out they do these you know they have these incredibly surreal experiences and one of the biggest sort of negative impacts on their mental health is when they come back from tour right and they go back and they go home and it feels like there's got to be something around the corner waiting for them and life just feels really kind of boring what tends to happen is sometimes then from a psychological perspective they create chaos Right. So if we can help them understand that and then give them some tools about and that's and I'm not talking about a checklist, right? Because that really doesn't work. Some more practical kind of stuff, some you know, even if it was a series of podcasts or live talks or, you know, we create um, a, a culture of kind of coaching feedback somehow for them when they first return. That gives them an immersive experience. That would really help a lot and then the information out to the families at the same time. I think there are lots of things that we do that we think will either cost too much or they'll do, you know, oh, that's a lot of work, we have to do all of these things. But actually there's lots of stuff there that's resources that are already available. One of the problems that we found with Defence is because they need to know everything that there's no opportunity for those guys to feel like they can just do what they need to do. And I talk about validating their experience and them having autonomy over their recovery. Now, it's almost like a lot of these organisations, we don't, we don't trust them to decide how they're feeling. We don't trust them to recognise that they're kind of going, hang on, I'm not feeling so great at the minute. I probably need some extra support because most of the time they put their hand up and they're stood down. Yeah, so there's some stigma around that. Absolutely. And if we can do – I think there's a couple of different sort of ways that we need to change how we approach it. And, you know, you can't – there's a risk assessment and I think this was done, look, 20, 30 years ago, okay. We had far less awareness about just general mental health and I think we we didn't really trust people to have a good assessment of, of their own sort of status or how they were feeling. And so I think it's really important to be able to give people that little bit more empowerment and being able to kind of go, you know what, things aren't great. Victoria Police did something last year that I thought was fantastic. They've got this process where they say, first three months, you go and see whoever you want. There's a bucket of money here. We don't need to know anything about it. You just access it because that's what you need. And if you can do that and you see who you want, I'd love to see that go a bit further. If, you know, you feel stressed, you're going to go off on stress leave. We don't want to lose them to the workers' comp system. So, you know, we know maybe it costs $500 a week to keep somebody in those early stages of their workers' comp claim. Okay, so how about we're just going to give you 500 bucks a week for you to do whatever you want. And if that means see a naturopath or an acupuncturist or a massage therapist, you do what you need yeah. because the autonomy in their recovery is a huge part of what makes it easier for them to actually get past that next point. Whereas if you've got them on the back foot all the time having to prove that that's somehow you know, the organisation's fault – we put them in a defensive mode. Mm. 
instead of putting them into the mode that says the organisation really does care and value you and wants you to get back to work as soon as you possibly can. And if you can't work in this role, that's fine. Come in and do this role over here and you go and see whoever you need to see because you're important to us. Mm. And when you do that, it completely changes their approach to how they feel about wanting to come to work. And that Vic Police was the first uh, institution that you knew that you know of that has done that? That I know that has done one where they kind of don't have to, you know, don't no explanations, no questions asked. No control you know? over where no. the money's spent. Here's your bucket, off you go. Was it successful, do you know? Um, it has been very successful as far as I'm aware. I don't know that anybody – and this is the thing. Sometimes in psychology we just want to go with the really formal research, you know – I think things move too quickly for us to always rely on a five-year PhD to validate that something's going to be effective. I think we need to kind of be a little bit more um, bespoke in the way that we approach things and also agile. We need to create agile sort of adaptive solutions and be, you know, in project management we say fail fast, right? It's a good thing to do that. But almost from a psychological perspective, we're too scared in case, you know, somehow it does something bad. We want to make sure it's absolutely not going to harm before we try anything. And yet if we asked people and we gave them some autonomy, you know, their recovery is then their own journey that they feel like they have some input into instead of feeling like they're just a pawn in a system and a number. It makes sense. Mm. Uh, and it'd be interesting if more... Um and more services give that a go, that approach. Yeah, I wrote a white paper at the end of last year called Trauma-Informed People Management and just helping people to understand, you know, when these things happen in the workplace, why they have an impact. Mm. That our perception around it is not really the issue. We shouldn't be judging what somebody else feels. If they're telling you that's how they feel, that's how they feel. Yeah. What do you, I'd be interested in get your thoughts, Kerry, on the role that peer workers should play or lived experience in this, in PTSD and any recovery or, um, or prevention methods. Did you, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I certainly think that they are an absolutely essential component of it because one of the things that we know is that um, storytelling is really a very effective way of processing emotion because it brings emotion up. So even when we start talking about things like EMDR therapy, part of why it works is because the emotions are brought to the surface and that activates all of that central system where all of the emotional feelings come up. Now, that's the only way that we can actually help move people through it. If we keep repressing the emotion, it doesn't actually help them to work through stuff. So storytelling is a really key way that we can connect with other people. So I always say show me somebody who's inspirational and I'll show you somebody who's had difficulties and been prepared to talk about it openly um, you know the reason that Brene Brown's TED talk on vulnerability went crazy was because she talked about being vulnerable mm. right you know when when people talk to me about PTSD and I say yeah I got hit by a bus they kind of know that you get it and I think that's a really key important part of where those peer support workers really come into it because this person wants to feel heard. Our stories are not the same, right? But the ability to be able to talk about it with somebody who has some understanding and some similar or lived experience is really important. Is there anything you would like to see different uh, as far as the care that's given to and support to post-service? So for people, veterans and stuff. I mean, it seems like the, the statistics say that when people 
come out of services when they're most susceptible to mental health and suicidal ideation. I'd love to see them not actually <laughs> exited out of the service at all. Um, and interestingly, um, I've been talking – I was talking to Georgina Whelan, who's now the uh, – the commissioner of the emergency services agency in the ACT. She used to be in defence. And uh, we were having a conversation about the challenges when you know somebody can't fulfil their their designated role, but they still have a whole bunch of skills that could easily be transferred into another role. And I've seen this because I live in Canberra. We, we see this because the the SRC Act, which is what Comcare comes under or the federal government's kind of workers' comp stuff, there is an expectation that they can't do that role but they could do a similar role in another agency potentially or they could do a similar role in a different area of that organisation. But it doesn't happen because these middle managers have these perceptions that, oh, I don't want your broken bits, don't throw them over here as if I need to manage that sort of stuff. Yeah. And the perception around those people is a really negative one and I hate it. I actually put out a blog a couple of weeks ago talking about malingering and how malingering actually doesn't really exist in the way that we seem to think that it does in big organisations and it's extremely frustrating. The main reason that people are perceived to be malingering is because, you know, nobody's actually listened or understood how they got to be in that role in the first place. If we intervened so much earlier and we stepped right back then as soon as they went off on stress leave, we were kind of like, hey, I'm really sorry. I, I always say, bring in an outsider, bring in somebody like me who calls them and kind of goes, I'm really sorry to hear that you, you've gone off on leave. Are you okay? Listen to the story. Let them tell you what it is and then say, I'm really sorry that that happened, but we don't need to find who was right and who's wrong. You're really important to the organisation. Come back in and we'll find a role that's really commensurate to your skills. Now, most HR areas, when I talk to big organisations, they kind of go, oh, but that's a lot of resources that we'd have to throw at it. But it costs the organisation so much money when they go off on workers' comp because it's a completely lost resource to the organisation, which they then need to back up and find somebody else to fill. If we could look at them in terms of skill sets or, you know, and I know in other areas of organisations where they have a, you know, a pool, you get thrown into the pool. That's not what I'm talking about. Something a bit more guided. But where we could take somebody who's got some great skills but they can no longer be out on the front line or front field for whatever reason. They've still got admin skills. They've still got project management skills. They've still got all of these skills. And we just need to give them a bit of a process about how we take them from an active frontline role and where we can utilise them best. Because the biggest threat for veterans is the fact that they don't feel that they've got any value anymore. Yeah. Right? We don't value them when we kind of throw them on the scrap heap. And that's what they feel like. Yeah, And when they've been part of such a rigid regime or where they've had that environment where they're told where to be, what to wear, how to be. Yeah, especially defence sort of organisation. And then they go out and transition in the civilian world and there's no structure around that. And I think that's the worst part. And, you know, I don't want to sit here and criticise defence, that's not the role, but they don't get an exit strategy that's really a lot of like the therapeutic kind of explanation of how these things kind of happen. And I just think even if they were given an alternative role where we did a skills audit – it reminds me there was a project that was done and this I want to say about a decade ago, an anti-recidivism project that was done in Victoria, right? 
And they gave somebody three months coming out of prison where they worked intensively. And we do this now in NDIS with recovery coaching, right? They work it with somebody intensively who helps them find their social networks, reconnect with the community, um, find other alternatives to give them meaning and and life. Because I talk about recovery, but you can't recover without a purpose. Yeah. Reskilling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even not necessarily the reskilling, but the remapping of where those skills can be utilised. Because organisations have, especially big ones, there's all sorts of roles, but we don't kind of, we, the, the problem is that we don't look at that person as a valuable commodity that still has skills that can be utilised. We start looking at them as a problem that we've got to work out how we're going to deal with. Yeah. Do you, do you think a part of it is also the fact that they almost uh, – it's not too hard, but they also don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to um, engage or communicate or what signs. You Agreed, know, and I think this is a big part of, and it's a big part of problems in that middle management layer. Often, is that you know we often get and I, look in in frontline organisations in particular, we get people who are really technically skilled. And so they end up in a middle management role managing people, but they're technically proficient. They're not necessarily people proficient. And I I don't think that we should make it that somebody who's technically proficient necessarily should be managing the people side of things, if that makes sense. We know we have different, from a personality trait perspective, we have different skills and abilities and some people are going to be more naturally sort of supportive of people. And there are certain things that we know that we can teach people, but there are some things that we just can't teach, they're inherent. So it's not that they don't necessarily care but they don't know how to deal with the emotions that people might show, so the emotion makes them uncomfortable, so then they react to the emotion that's not really their fault. We've got to recognise that they have a different way of approaching things, but they shouldn't be in a people management role, yeah. right? And the thing is that we we don't separate people skills from technical skills. And I think we absolutely need to because, as we heard several times yesterday, an organisation is only a, a sum of its people, Right. It, it, the role that it fills is something different, but it, it's only, it only exists because of the people in it. Mm-hmm. That certainly makes sense. What, with regards to culture and stigma, uh, what do you think needs to change and should that start at the top? Um, certainly, you know, stigma, the, the stigma stuff, because you've got to stop and think about the fact that the people at the top have usually been in this organisation for 30 years, right? Yeah. And the way that they manage things and the way that they got to be where they are, they got there because they showed that, you know, stoic, stiff upper lip sort of stuff, and that's how they ended up in that role. Now, in order to do that, they've had to repress a whole bunch of stuff about themselves, you know, and those listening will probably go, no, that's not me. It, it is really. <laughs> you just, whether you recognise it or not. In in the same way, we had International Women's Day last week, right? And people were talking about women who get to the top and they often exhibit a lot of those sort of, you know, behaviours a bit like men do where it's just kind of get on with it. I think there's an element of this where we need to get that bit of awareness and crossover. At a senior level, I think even if they don't feel it necessarily, they can see that it makes a difference when we take a different approach. And 
all they need to do is actually endorse that this is something that we want to do because we know that ultimately it's going to make it for a better organisation. It has to have a top-down approach, then it has to have a bottom-up. So we start at the top with the edict. This is the way we're going to do things. And look, a great example of this, I think, was Ambulance Victoria. A couple of years ago, they were one of the, they were the first organisation to have a mental health wellbeing strategy. They recognised that they were having they had a very young workforce. They had really high turnover in their in their paramedics, and their young workforce were coming in. And they at the time they had a lot of workers' compensation issues with um, people getting assaulted. So they thought differently, looked outside the box. They brought in a bunch of ex-coppers and they trained them to think more like police do, operate two up. Well, one's working on the person that we're looking after over here and the other one's keeping an eye out on what's going on. That reduced their workers' compensation claims by 30%, right? So sometimes when you get insightful leadership, somebody might have come through the organisation but they look at things differently, then we can look outside the box and we can see that maybe there's other ways of doing things. And even if you don't necessarily have the skills, if you bring in somebody who does have that people side of things, then the organisation at least knows that there's this expectation top down that says this is the way we're going to improve things. And AV are a really good example of that. But then at that bottom end, right, we need to then take our recruits and don't exclude them from coming in because they're not resilient enough, but put them through their training and then kind of go, okay, before you go out there, let's just clean out and empty out those, you know, bottles or jars, whatever you want to call them, before yeah. we start filling them up with other things that we know you're going to experience. With regards to family, you see some intergenerational behavioural patterns, but do you think that that transfers in organisations so almost as they're coming through the organisation the way they were treated becomes the way that they think that they need to treat people because that's how it was done when they were coming through because they've been in there for such a long time. Yeah. That that that's the part of the challenge. Yeah, yeah. The, so I was speaking to um and I I'm going to sorry Jacqueline I want to say Drew, but anyway, from Griffith University, she was presenting yesterday and she was talking about some research that she did with um police. I think it was Queensland police anyway. She followed the recruits, I think it was in her PhD, where they went, when they first came in and she assessed them before they entered the academy, she assessed them when they were in the middle of their training, she assessed them at the end of their training and then she assessed them again 12 months after. Now, she said, you know, the 12 months after, it was scary. The attitude that they had was as if they'd been a 20-year veteran in, in the police force and such was the permeation of the culture of the organisation once they entered it. Now, that is a really good indicator of, yes, that is what happens. And culture, we have to – we walk into a particular culture, you either adapt or you're out. You know, if you can't stand the way that that operates – how on earth are they going to change it when they're just the rookie at the bottom end of the chain and, you know, they're told this is how we do things around here? And we still see that and not just in policing but we see it in all sorts of large organisations. Yeah. You know, we even see it in things like life-saving where, you know, the person at the top of that particular club, the club president, who's probably been around for 50 years as well, pretty stoic old bloke, you know, and he's kind of going, nah, they're 14-year-olds, they're fine, they're, no worries, you know, and they're not yeah. necessarily going to provide the information. 
And so that's where we have to start looking at different kind of communication channels as well. Um, if if there's blockages within organisations that stop with the, you know, the sergeant or the president or the whatever, how else do we get information to those people underneath and how do we give them an opportunity to kind of put their hand up and go, you know, drowning, not waving over here um, and give them a direct line to somebody who can, you know, help them look at it differently or try something else, get them out of that particular situation before we lose them. Yeah. That's incredibly insightful and you make some really good points there. Uh, Kerry, what, what does the future hold for you? What, what's coming up for you? Obviously, you've just released a book last year. Yeah, so I've actually stepped back from working one-on-one because I'm working – more, I'm doing more trauma prevention strategy with organisations. And it was a hard decision to sort of make to do that. But even when I'm doing one-on-one, I'm doing more sort of workshops rather than, because if I keep sitting in my office seeing, you know, 30 people a week, um, then that's only 30 people that I might be able to assist as opposed to, you know, being able to help 300. Uh, I think the issue is the awareness raising. What I really want to try and get more people to understand is that it's not just a byproduct of working in this area. People who come and work in emergency services organisations usually want to give back to their community. They're very thoughtful, caring and, you know, supportive people. People who go into armed forces usually have got some interesting backgrounds, like rough family backgrounds often, they're looking for a place to belong and connect. And when we understand that we we do need connection and that sense of belonging to make us feel like life is purposeful, then we we can recognise that we want to try and take care of these. They're, they're like our family, right? But your family don't disown you when things go bad. So trying to help keep all of this awareness along the way And that's my big thing. I want to try and help people understand that trauma is a natural part of life, that, you know, life throws you curveballs, you've got to learn to duck and weave, that it is a system that we can learn to understand and manage the system for ourselves and know when things are really pointy and we do need some help. Because the problem is there's actually not enough psychologists out there and the government, no, we've got a massive workforce problem. We've probably lost 10,000 psychologists in, out of private practice in the last five, seven years or so. Yeah. And we can't keep relying on that group as, oh, well, when they break, we'll send them over there. They're not there, mm. right? They don't exist. We don't have enough and it takes too long to train them. So we want to try and help more people get more awareness, build their emotional intelligence to a point where they can help themselves and then they know when it gets to that point they really need somebody to help intervene at a particular point, then they can get that support when they need it at that level. Kerry, how can people get hold of your book? Um, So you can go to thetroublewithtrauma.com and that will take you directly to the book site or if you want more information about me, you can go to kerryhoward.com.au and um, you can get the book on there under the shop bit as well. Kerry, it's been an incredibly insightful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Is there anything else you want to say in closing, any other point um, that you want to raise or something that I may not have asked yet? No, just really wanted to highlight one of the, the key bits out of the book that I say to people is that survival is miraculous, but recovery is a choice. And in order to recover, people need a purpose. Mm. 
Mm. And so helping people to be able to find a purpose for the situation that they found themselves in and allowing them the tools and the awareness to recover is really important. And that's one of the things that I feel like my mission in life is to help people understand that, you know, we can all recover. Well, it's certainly, uh, I mean, it takes courage to be a leader and you're certainly a leader in this, uh, in, this uh, in PTSD and what you're doing with trauma. So we uh, appreciate and thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh, and thanks for taking the time to have a chat with me. Thanks, Sam, for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.